First, I want to read for us John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 10 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 10. He was in the world, the word, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So I know I've told this story before, but it'll make a point that I want to make. Uh, The taxi that we were riding in, it limped into a village in Senegal. Uh, Rural Senegal, but then most of Senegal is rural. The five Africans that were with us in the little Peugeot wagon immediately exited the car and they disappeared into the village. And we two Americans were left there by ourselves. Uh, We got out, we stretched our legs, we wondered if the car was going to make it all the way to Mali since it had already broken down once and now it was overheating. And uh, while we were talking, some noise and commotion caught our attention and we looked up to see about 20 Senegalese men pointing at us and shouting some word over and over again. There were about 20 men, but at the moment it looked like there were 50. <laughs> they were all moving toward us as a group, and I steeled myself for their arrival and went to meet them. But my dear friend Larry got back in the car, and I said, Larry, come with me. And he said, no, I'm staying with our stuff. So Larry, he, he is well-traveled, and in his many travels, he had apparently learned that a diversion often precedes a theft, so he's staying with the stuff. So um, I moved towards the group, and they were no longer repeating that word over and over again, and as we came near each other, a spokesman emerged, and I engaged in a series of greetings in, in Arabic and in the native language, Wolof. I said, salam alaikum, which means hello or really, uh, peace be upon you. And he responded, Malikum salam, uh, hello to you. And I said something like, Nanga Def, how are you? So we'd been taught these things. And he responded, Magnifi, I'm okay. And then I ran out of Wolof greetings. <laughs> and he asked another question, and I, I shrugged my shoulders. And then he said something else, and I said in English, I, I don't understand. And then the men looked at each other, and I didn't know what was coming next. And then they all started laughing, and they just walked away. (laughs) They totally lost interest in us. Later, I asked an English speaker who lived in Mali what that word was that they were saying. And he said it probably means something like white guy, white guy, gringo, gringo. 
it is difficult to make yourself understood when you're with people who don't know your language. I don't know if you've done much of that, but if you're in a group and none of them speak your language, it's so difficult. It's not just a matter of words. It, it's also a matter of customs, beliefs, attitudes. They play a significant role in the communication process, which means they create significant opportunities to be misunderstood. Now, with that in mind, think about what God must do to communicate in a way that humans understand. Because he's not just communicating cross-culturally, but across the unfathomable creator-creature divide. It's not like my attempt to speak to other men like myself. It's more like me trying to communicate my attitudes and intentions to a wild bird. In fact, the gap between the human and the bird is narrower than the gap between God and humans. But God was doing more than communicating to humans. He was rescuing humans. He was bringing them into a life to which their highest aspirations and most glorious dreams can't compare he didn't just want to communicate with humans. He wanted to save them, to change them, to rehumanize them. Imagine if you tried to bring a sparrow to the place where it trusted you, even when that meant frightening it or causing it some pain. Maybe you'd need to become a bird in order for that bird to understand your intentions enough to trust you. And maybe God would need to become a human in order for us to understand his intentions enough to trust him. That, according to the, the biblical writers, is precisely what the creator did. Now, we've just completed a series in which Jesus introduced us to his father, God. Today we begin a new series, and beginning new series is always difficult because you've got to set a lot of context, and it doesn't seem as practical as most sermons. So bear with me through this. Today we're beginning a new series in which Jesus introduces us to himself. Now we'll be spending our time in the Gospel of John, though it would be possible, beneficial even, to receive the same kind of introduction from the other Gospels. The other Gospels introduce us to Jesus primarily by recording facts John does so primarily by explaining those facts' um, significance. The other Gospels give most of their attention to events in Jesus' life. John's Gospel gives attention to the meaning of Jesus' life. So the heart of our study will center on seven statements that Jesus made. Seven times when Jesus said, I am, and then said something important about himself. And we'll start looking at those seven I am statements next week. This week, we need to frame those statements. And we need to do that because without the right frame, we're liable to take Jesus' statements about himself and force them into the wrong framework, one that Jesus himself wouldn't recognize. And, and we'll mistakenly think we're being biblical because we're using biblical words to do it. The frame we'll use is constructed of the Old Testament, of its ideas and pictures. See, if we crop the frame, so like you think of you're using a, a 
paint or something, uh, um, software on your computer, and you crop a picture, if we crop the frame so that our picture of what God is doing in Christ begins in Matthew and ends in Revelation, we'll never understand Jesus because Jesus explained himself using Old Testament concepts and images. And so do all the New Testament writers. So in Matthew's gospel, when you see that, it's easy to recognize because he's always telling us this is from the Old Testament. His formula is, this happened to fulfill what was written by the prophet, and then he'll cite some Old Testament passage. John is every bit as dependent on the Old Testament as is Matthew. He's just not as open about it. So in John 1, 1 through 18, we have the introduction and what this gospel is all about. John makes that introduction by evoking the Old Testament, not once, but over and over again. Now, he's more subtle than Matthew. He doesn't say this is from the Old Testament. What he does is weave Old Testament words and images throughout everything he says, starting with the very first word. If you were able to pull the Old Testament strands out of John's gospel, like you could pull threads out of a cloth, the entire thing would fall to pieces. Now, I said he started with the first word. I should have said he started with the first words. They are the exact words used in the Greek translation of the Bible's opening sentence. So you go back to Genesis 1-1 and read it in Greek. Greek translation predated John's gospel by a couple hundred years, 150 years or so. You'll read the very same words, in the beginning, John is putting us on notice, see, we have to get this, that Jesus is part of that story. Now, you can't separate that story from Jesus and make sense of the story. You can't separate Jesus from that story and make sense of Jesus. And what's more, you can't separate yourself from that story and understand yourself. To not know what story you're a part of is a problem. It's one that children who are adopted often face. This problem of what's my story? You are part of the Genesis 1 story. It's vital we learn to think in those terms. Otherwise, we'll substitute a different story. Probably the story that's been around for a few hundred years that God put us on earth only so that he could, um, we could escape earth and go to heaven when we die. That is not the biblical story. That's not Jesus' story. Therefore, it's not your story. That's Plato's story. That's the philosopher Plato's story. If you think that's the story you're in, you're going to find it so difficult to live a distinctively Christian life, and you won't know why. John sets Jesus' story within the narrative of creation. So to make sure his readers get it, he begins with the Bible's opening words. In the beginning, and he tells us that the word was there. In the beginning was the word. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament, remember that God created the heavens and the earth by his word. 
In Genesis 1, we read again and again that God said, for example, let there be light, let the, the waters separate, um, let there be plants of the field and trees and etc. Let there be, again and again, the psalmist summarized it this way, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. Now, when the rabbis read Genesis 1, before John ever wrote, when the rabbis read Genesis 1, they noticed that God spoke 10 times in Genesis 1. 10 words. That's significant because in Hebrew, guess what the Ten Commandments are called? The Ten Words. We call them commandments. The Bible calls them words, the Ten Words. And so the rabbis noticed that, and they said that God used the Ten Words, the Torah, the, the Ten Commandments, to create the universe. And John knows this. He's writing after they've been saying this for many years. And he's identifying Jesus as the creative word which spoke all things into existence. Now remember in Genesis 1 that darkness covered the face of the deep. John intentionally takes us back there by mentioning darkness right at the beginning of his gospel, verse 5. Remember in Genesis 1 how God said, let there be light. In fact, the word light is used five times in verses 3 to 5. In Genesis 1, 3 through 5. So John mentions light in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 8, and verse 9. He won't let us forget what story we're talking about. The story of Jesus, the story of creation, one story. Now, you might say, I think those are just accidents of language. They're coincidences. But see where John is taking us. He's telling us the story of re-creation, accomplished through Jesus, and particularly the recreation of a temple in which God and humans meet. So when we read Genesis 1 and 2, we often miss something that ancient readers would not have missed. Genesis 1 and 2 is about creating a temple. God made the cosmos to be a temple, a place where people can meet and worship him. The Genesis story of creation is laid out so that any ancient reader would quickly understand what the Lord was doing. He's making himself a temple. You remember how many days are mentioned in Genesis 1? How many days? Seven. You know that. You're all scared to say it. Seven days, right? That's not arbitrary. Do you know how many days the sacred rite of dedicating a temple took? Seven. The cosmos were created to be a temple where God and his people lived together. That's really important. You know what happened on the sixth day? I just heard a scholar say, no, God created the world and he had intended to have nothing to do with it until everything went wrong, and then he had to reinsert himself into the picture. I don't believe that's true. God intended to live with his people from the very beginning. You know what happened on the sixth day of a temple dedication? It didn't matter if you were in Samaria, if you were in Syria, if you were in Assyria, anywhere in the Middle East. What happens on the sixth day of the temple dedication? So it takes seven days to dedicate a temple. 
On the sixth day, the image of God was placed in the temple's holiest place. You know what happened on the sixth day of creation? God placed his image in the holy place, Eden. Remember Genesis 1? John won't let us forget it. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. In Genesis 2, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. He was setting his image in the holy place. Of course, things went terribly wrong. Because God's image was not, was not made of stone or wood. It was made of human flesh and had a will and desires that it can act on, it can choose. And so the image itself defiles the temple, is forced out of Eden, the holy place. Uh, the, the people devalued God right in his own temple. Jewish people knew this story. In fact, they knew they were part of this story. They were living it. They knew that God went on to start setting things right by calling a man Abraham and his descendants Israel, and he gave them a second sacred place, the promised land. That it was a sacred place is clear in the scriptures. So, for example, Numbers 35, 34, God says to Israel, Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. He's saying, don't do what Adam did. Don't defile my sacred place. That's temple talk. Just as God gave Adam a command in the garden, he gave the Jewish people commands at Sinai. And just as Adam flouted the command and was exiled from the garden, Israel flouted the commands and was exiled from the sacred land. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you don't do this, you will be exiled. You will be banished from the, the sacred land. It was the same story. While they were in the land, the pride of the Jewish people was the temple. And at first it was a portable temple. Uh, it was a tent. It was called a tabernacle. Only later did they have a stationary stone and wood temple situated in the holy city, Jerusalem. It's important to note that unlike every other temple in the Near East, there was no image of God placed in the tabernacle. In fact, God prohibited, think of the second commandment, the ten, the ten words, the second one. God prohibited people from making one. And there was a reason for that. God had already made one. Humans. But the image had been defaced and a major restoration project would be needed before the image could be returned to its place and the temple completed. See, now, now we're talking about our story. This is our story. For God is conforming Jesus' people to the image of his Son so that we can take our rightful place and the temple can be completed. Now keep in mind, Genesis 1 is not the whole story. Genesis 1 is the beginning of a story. If you follow that story through its narrative arc, so Genesis through the end of Exodus, Numbers fits into that 
framework, time framework. Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy all fit within that framework. The timeline runs from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Exodus. If you follow the story through to Exodus 40, you'll see that God is preparing his people so he can dwell with them. That was always the plan. It was the plan in Eden. It was, it's still the plan. We mistakenly read Exodus and we think the climax is in chapter 12, the Passover, or must be in chapter 14 when they cross through the Red Sea, or maybe the, the, the highlight of Exodus, the climax of Exodus, Exodus 20, when God gives the law. But no, the highlight, the climax of the book of Exodus is chapter 40. Do you know what happens in chapter 40? So you start in chapter 25 and you get all these boring chapters. I shouldn't say that, but there's some really great chapters in there too. But you start with the building of the tabernacle. You'll do it this way. You'll do it that way. You'll put these things in there. And it's very specific. When you get to chapter 40, you come to the climax of the whole narrative arc of the Pentateuch. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Exodus, the climax is that God comes to his people and he fills his tabernacle with his presence. Unfortunately, God's people reenacted Adam's story. They committed idolatry. God reenacted the banishment story, and he exiled them from the promised land. And you remember what happened? The temple was destroyed. The presence of God departed. Israel knew that story. It was their story. Now, when John was writing, the rabbis like to say that at Sinai, God gave his 10 words, his Torah, to all the people of the world, all the people of the world, not just the Jews, but only the Jews recognized it. See, John is playing off that story when he says in verse 10 that the word came to his own, his creation, and his creation didn't recognize him. That's the story we are in, you and I. God created a cosmos to be a temple where he could dwell with his people, but they defiled it. So God set about putting things to rights. He called Abraham, then rescued his descendants from slavery. So you remember what the Bible says? So that they could worship him. More temple language. They weren't able to do that in Egypt. Why? Because Egypt was defiled by idolatry. And then God gave his rescued people a portable temple, a, a tabernacle, where his presence could dwell with them. And you remember the story of how Moses would go into the tent of meeting, into the tabernacle, and meet with God, right? That's the story of Genesis and Exodus, which ends with the coming of the very presence of the creator God into the tabernacle to be with his people. So Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's the story in a nutshell, Genesis through Exodus. And then the story gets replayed another time in the Old Testament, only the second time. It's the stationary temple built by David's son, dedicated in how many days? Seven days. And then the scripture points out that there's another seven days of celebration. Once again, in that story, the very presence of God descends on the temple and the creator God dwells with his people, 
which is the point of everything. But that temple was also defiled. The people worshiped idols. They were forced out of the sacred land just as Adam was forced out of Eden. God's presence no longer dwelt with them. The temple that David's son built was destroyed. Every stone just destroyed. A second temple was eventually built, but this is important. Unlike the tabernacle, unlike the first temple, at the second temple, God's glorious presence never came back. Yet the prophets, and particularly Isaiah and Ezekiel, promised that God would return, that his glory would fill the temple, especially Ezekiel, but even the whole earth. The fulfillment of that promise is the part of the story that John wants to tell us. John in chapter 1 makes clear He's just continuing the story. That's why he starts off in the beginning. We find the creator God who made the world and gave it his word. We find the word world doesn't receive that word. Now look at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Does that sound familiar now to you? We have seen, what did we see? His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's the story. When the word that was God, verse 1, became flesh, he made his dwelling among us. And what did we see? We saw his glory. The glory that filled the tabernacle. The glory that filled the temple. The glory that Ezekiel and Isaiah promised would return. Now, you might be thinking that's a stretch, but look at what comes next. John writes, the word became flesh. And guess what the next word is in the original language? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Now we know we're in the same story. John, John's choice of an extremely unusual word in the Bible was no accident. He's talking about tabernacle glory, the glory that departed but has returned just as the prophets promised in Jesus. So what does St. Matthew tell us? He's called Emmanuel God with us, which he takes from Isaiah. The tabernacle was where God dwelled with his people in the wilderness. The temple is where God dwelled with his people in Jerusalem. Jesus is where God dwells with his people now and forever. He is the intersection of heaven and earth. See, that's what people thought temples were. Temples were where heaven and earth intersected. John is showing us that the intersection happens with Jesus. 
He's the place people meet God. This is the continuation of the story, the story the Old Testament told. This is the story that the first martyr, St. Stephen, told when he looked up to heaven, and what did he see? The glory of God, most translations say and, but I think it's, it, it certainly could be translated. Any Greek student knows this, but uh, I think it's what's called epigetical. Even, he saw his glory, even Jesus standing at the right hand of God. See, it's the same story, the story that St. Paul knew. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, 3, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the story we read about in the final book of the Bible, the Revelation. In those last great chapters, chapters 21 and 22, if you're ever discouraged, read chapters 21 and 22 and get a big picture. John writes, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. That was always the plan. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. That was always the plan, and it will become the reality. We read in chapter 21 that the New Jerusalem, uh, John saw the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride beautifully adorned for her husband, and that God will dwell there with his people as he intended. But then John says something we wouldn't expect. He said, I did not see a temple in the city. How can that be? Because temples, that's where heaven and earth intersect. That's where God meets with his people. John's answer is, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And on that day, God will set his image in its rightful place. Okay, I know that's a lot of stuff. But as we begin this series, introducing Jesus starting next week in his own words, we need to make sure we're in the right story. The story of the God who made a cosmos-sized temple, placed his image in the holy place where he would live with his people. This is the story of how it went wrong and how God is setting it right. And it's the story you are living right now. The story of how God, through Christ, is restoring his image and finishing the project. All right, let's pray. God, we go through our days always with a story in mind. We can't help it. You made us that way. And sometimes we think the story is of us becoming well-known, of us getting lots of money, of us being a success. Sometimes we think the story is of us getting out of here. All of the pain and trouble and going to heaven where we won't have any. Would you put into our hearts the true story is not just about us going away but about you coming here being with your people as you always intended and restoring your image in us 
Lord, work that story until it's part of our hearts and our brains. And I ask you to do this in Jesus' good name. Amen.